All right, good morning. All right, welcome to uh, Coastline, those of you here in person and also those of you uh, with us online. Uh, good morning, welcome to church. Before we get started this morning, um, I have a few announcements for you guys. While we're doing announcements, you guys can um, jump ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. We'll be there in just a moment, but real quick, we have some announcements for you guys, reminders about things that are going on. Um, first announcement that I want to share with you guys very quickly is this Wednesday evening. So if you've been with us, you guys know on Wednesday evenings, we have something that we call our Know and Grow groups. Basically, they're discipleship uh, classes and groups that happen here um, on site. And so I want to remind you guys that we're starting up a new little mini three-week session um, this Wednesday evening. Charles, who did worship for us this morning, He's going to be doing um, a message that he's titling, What is Worship? And so the guy's up here with his guitar, leading us in songs, and so it's good to hear from him, the guy who's leading us in worship, exactly what worship is. And so we're going to go through the scriptures. In fact, he um, sent me his notes, and so I've had a chance to look over the, his notes. They're really good, and so I think you guys are going to be really blessed uh, this Wednesday evening. So I want to encourage you guys to come out. Wednesday, 7 p.m., and be a part of our Know and Grow uh, series that we're having here at Coastline. And then the next announcement is, those of you married, we are having our next, um, what are we calling it, Growing Together uh, marriage group, and that takes place this Friday evening here at 7 p.m. as well. Pastor Sam and Krishana, that's Pastor Sam in the back, he'll wave to you. Uh, Pastor Sam and Krishana are doing... Um, this uh, Friday evening, and they're calling their uh, message the do's and don'ts of differences. And so um, how to handle differences in our marriage from a, from a biblical perspective. And so those of you that are married, one of the things you know for sure is that there are, are differences, right? There are things that you might not agree on. Obviously, naturally, you might not be like-minded and everything. And so uh, Sam and Krishan are going to be here Friday evening, and they're going to be going through the scriptures and um, looking to give every single one of us uh, an answer from God's word on what to do with those differences. So I encourage you guys to come out, um, bring the kids, child care is provided. And then a couple of things that are coming up that I want to remind you guys about or let you guys know about is Sunday evening, um, August the 29th. So the last Sunday night of this month, we're having a worship night here um, at Coastline. Some of you guys were here last time we had our worship night with Pastor Wilfredo. This one, August 29th, we're having Pastor Eli Jennings. So some of you guys remember during COVID. Um, anybody remember during COVID um, when we were doing only online services? Pastor Eli came, or not came, he came to my house while you were at your house, and he led worship for us um, there in my living room and obviously online. And so I know a lot of you guys love him. Um, he's definitely a blessing. And so he'll be here on August 29th. That takes place at 6 p.m., but we'll talk about it more in um, the next couple Sundays um, to remind you guys. And then the last thing that we want to have you ladies put on your calendar is that we're going to be starting up Daughters again. So those of you that have been with us for a while, Daughters is our women's fellowship here at Coastline. And so 
we used to have that obviously pre-COVID and then COVID, um, we stopped doing daughters, but we're bringing daughters back and that's going to be taking place the first Saturday of each month. Most of the time it's going to take place on Saturday mornings, but I know that I believe in December one of them is going to be an evening, but the first one is going to be taking place there the first Saturday morning of September. As it gets closer, we'll give you guys more information. That um, Daughters is actually going to be taking place off-site at um, Anthony and Stacy's home, and so they're going to be hosting Daughters. So if you need more information, you guys can see my wife, Christina, or Stacy. Um, you know, Stacy's usually here running around, and they'll get you guys more information about uh, what's going to happen with daughters, but we'll also have flyers um, next Sunday so that you guys can take it invite um, a Lady in your life. Okay, so that's announcements, but if you have your Bibles, let's go to 2nd Samuel chapter 18 2nd Samuel chapter 18 If you take your notes this morning, you can title this morning's message the invitation to reconcile the invitation to reconcile. We're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 18, and then we'll work our way into 2 Samuel chapter 19. So if you're with me, 2 Samuel chapter 18, let's start in verse 9 as we take a look at the death of Absalom. It says in verse 9, 2 Samuel chapter 18, during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair caught in the tree. His mule kept on going and left him dangling in the air. And one of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a tree. What, um, Joab demanded, you saw him there and didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with ten pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I would, not, I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver, the man replied to Joab. We all heard the king say to you, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. Verse 13, and if I had betrayed the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first to abandon me. Verse 14, enough of this nonsense, Joab said. Then he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive in the great tree. Verse 15, 10 of Joab's young armor bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him. Now, would you jump with me over to um, chapter 19? And let's take a look at verse 9. Chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Now all the people were in, in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies, he delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he's fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, who we appointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Now jump to verse 14. It says, so he swayed the hearts, David swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Verse 15, then the king returned. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for just this moment that you've given to us to be able to stop 
in the midst of many of us in our busy lives and all the activities and things and stuff that's going on. And for this moment to just be able to sit, for this moment to be able to stop and hear from you. God, we pray that you would take this text that is before us this morning, and God, would you speak? Lord, would you take the topic, the subject of reconciliation, and would you minister to our heart? Lord, we know, God, that your word is what we need. Your word is what changes us. Your word is what heals us. And so we pray that your word would do its work in our heart this morning. And so, God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Once again, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of this morning's message is The Invitation to Reconcile. We've been studying the past few weeks the painful betrayals that David had gone through. In fact, there were three specific betrayals that happened to King David. You guys might remember the first, betray the first betrayal that David faced was the betrayal of his son Absalom. And what made this backstabbing, this betrayal so painful was that Absalom not only wanted David's throne... But Absalom also wanted David's life. You guys remember, he wanted David's dead body delivered to him. And so that was David's first betrayal. The second betrayal that David faced in his life was when David was betrayed by a close friend and by his counselor, Ahithophel. And likewise, Ahithophel wasn't content with seeing David simply removed from the throne, but Ahithophel too wanted David dead. And so these two betrayers, these two men who've transpired against David, who've come and undermined David, the two of them both want to see the same thing happen. Now obviously both of these betrayals hurt, and in some ways, both of those betrayals might have even made sense to the men who carried out the betrayals. But there was a third betrayal that happened in David's life that obviously hurt the most. Yes, it hurts to be betrayed by your son. Yes, it, yes, it hurts to be betrayed by a friend. But this third betrayal, it made absolutely no sense. And it was the betrayal that David experienced at the hands of the nation of Israel. To say it simply, it really hurt David to have the people of Israel turn their back on their king. While all the betrayals were unfair, no doubt this third one was the most confusing. And it was the most unexpected. You see, David had a long history of sacrifice when it came to his relationship with the nation of Israel. He had been nothing but good to them, and David had been nothing but good for them. In fact, David survived his many years, you guys remember, of running from Saul as David was anointed by Samuel, king or next king of Israel, and Saul finds out he spends these years running from Saul. 
so that one day he could take the throne, so that one day he would be able to make Israel a godly nation and a great nation. As David was able to lead Israel, he led them into this time of peace, this time of prosperity that this nation had never known. And so when you look at his relationship between king and people, this was a betrayal that no one saw coming. It was a betrayal that even David was blindsided by. Yet you guys remember as we studied the lead up to the betrayal, how Absalom came and he began to steal the hearts of the people. Remember Absalom went and he set himself at the gate there in Jerusalem. And those who came with their complaints, he would stand there and he would act sort of as a judge for the nation and he would make promises. David's too busy. My father can't handle your situations and your disputes, but let me handle them. And if I were to become king, let me tell you what I would do, slowly undermining his father. Listen, slowly stealing the hearts of the people away. So on one end, you look and you say, well, this is shocking. But obviously with hindsight, with Scripture to be able to go back and read and study, we look and we can say here right now, well, actually, because we have the pages of Scripture, we could see it coming. We could see those steps, those layers of betrayal, those layers of undermining that Absalom and Ahithophel were setting up. If there was one verse that perfectly summarizes, encapsulates David's reign as king over Israel, was this one. Would you write it down? Psalm 78, verse 72. Psalm 78, verse 72, where it says, And David shepherded them, shepherd the nation, shepherd the people, with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. According to Psalm 78 here, 72, it says, David shepherded. David reigned as king of Israel with integrity of heart. There was something different about this leader. There was something different about David as king. And one of the things we know was that at the conclusion of David's life, David was mentioned, David is known, he's talked about as being a man after God's heart. And it's verses like Psalm 78, 72 that confirm it. You see, there was an integrity in David as a leader. This word integrity there in Psalm 78, in the Hebrew language, it speaks about an uprightness about the way that David lived his life. Oh, David was a sinner just like you and I. David has his faults just like you and I. David had his scandals, his situations. David had his moments. But there was a way, there was an integrity in David's life. And, and this was the integrity, this was the uprightness. David was not about his own honor, and David was not about his own interests. So you see, when you take a look at David's life, David was about the people's interests, and David was about God's honor and God's glory. 
Which leads me to a question this morning. Would you give me your eyes for a moment, church? If David's life could be described as a life about the interests of others and the glory of God, how would our life be described this morning? What would others say about our life and our interest and what we're about? In fact, when you're alone with the Lord, obviously the Lord knows your heart, the Lord knows my heart. He knows the motives of our heart. What would the Lord, how would the Lord describe our life this morning and what our life is about? When I take a look at David, the scripture is very clear that he led the people, he led the nation with integrity. At a time, especially 2021, when we see so many leaders, whether in the spiritual realm or in the world or in the government, when we see so many leaders falling as casualties by the wayside because of integrity, as we see scandals in high positions, in high offices, whether across churches or across the country, integrity matters, doesn't it? An uprightness about our life, it matters. Whatever kind of position that you find yourself in this morning, whatever kind of position or power God has entrusted to you or has entrusted to me, you and I, we are to lead with integrity, with uprightness. You see, my prayer is that there would be whatever position, whatever capacity God has given to us, that it would not end. Whenever the term ends, whenever the reign ends, whenever the position ceases, whatever it is that God has entrusted to you, entrusted to me, I pray that it would end without scandal. I pray that it would end with words like this, and David, and David reigned with integrity. And so if you're, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a dad, if you're a boss, if you're a shift leader, if you're a coach, whatever it is that your reign, that your leadership would be marked by integrity. Now, when you're a great leader, when you're a great shepherd, it's very shocking when that group decides to turn its back on you. Obviously, a big part of this betrayal had to do with the lies we talked about earlier that Absalom filled the hearts and the mind of Israel with. But if we're being honest this morning, it's still shocking. It's still shocking that a man with that type of integrity with that type of leadership, with that type of heart for people, specifically in the role that he was in, that type of man with that type of anointing, that people would turn their back on him. But that's exactly what happened there in Israel. Now, we get into chapter 18 here. Absalom's now on the throne. The people have now made their choice. We want Absalom. David's on the run. He's, he's out of Jerusalem. He's off the throne. But something interesting happens. 
as Absalom is out riding one day on a mule in the midst of battle, we're told here in 2 Samuel chapter 18 that Absalom dies. As this battle's taking place, one of the things that David made very clear, it was that, hey, battle's happening. Absalom, I mean, even though it's his own son, David pretty much is saying Absalom's a pretty bad man. But I'm going to go back, and we're going to go to battle. I'm going to get my throne back. But in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this fighting, do not kill my son. Do not take his life. If you have the opportunity to take him out, do not take it. And so this day, they're in the midst of battle. Absalom is on the mule. He goes to this part there in wherever they were, where there's these branches, and the branches are hanging. One of the things we know is that Absalom had really long hair in that culture. And as he's going beneath the branches or riding under the branches or under the trees, his hair gets caught in some of the branches. As his hair gets caught in some of the branches, the mule that he's riding takes off, leaving, some of your Bibles might say, leaving Absalom hanging. Hanging between heaven and earth, some of the translations say. And so as he's there caught in the tree, hanging, some of these guys from David's team sees, and man, we got him. The man that we're pursuing, he's here. But David told us not to kill him. David told us not to lay a finger on him, but David said to capture him. So they go and report back to Joab. Some of you guys remember Joab. Joab was the commander of the army of Israel. So they go back to their commander and they say, hey, Absalom's hanging by the hair from a tree. What do we do? Joab says, well, you guys didn't kill him? If you would have killed him, I mean, I would have gave you a hero's belt and I would have gave you gold and silver. I mean, you guys would have been just rewarded. And these men of David, they look at Joab and said, wait, wait, Joab, if we would have touched the king's son, we know what would have happened. It doesn't matter how much money you would have offered us, we will not touch the king's son because the king, David, he said not to kill him. So what does Joab do? Joab goes and he takes three daggers, we're told, and he finds where Absalom is hanging from the tree. And he goes and he takes the three daggers and he stabs them right, all three, into Absalom's heart. And to finish the job, we're told there at the end of verse 15, there in chapter 18, that he was barely alive. He's hanging from the tree, three daggers to the heart, and 10 of Joab's young armor bearers, 10 of his sidekicks, his young men, they go, they surround Absalom, and they finish the job. They kill him. Now, why am I sharing this story with you guys this morning? Because it's part of getting David back to the throne. It's part of the reconciliation process. I, I know it's not the most exciting. I know it's not like, wow, this is beautiful. We're talking about death. We're talking about disaster. And yet here in chapter 18, we have the man who placed himself on the throne, 
the man who the people placed on the throne, we have him killed. Which leads to chapter 19 now. So the temp king is dead. The temporary king, the self-exalted king, he's dead. The people's choice is king, he's dead. What does a nation do? You see, this nation who had ousted David as its leader now has themselves a dead leader. What does the nation do? Jump with me over to chapter 19. Take a look at verse 9. It says in verse 9, Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel. And so we see very clearly now this nation with no king, with no man on the throne, they're at dispute with one another. The people could not agree with each other on what the nation is to do going forward. In fact, there in verse 9, if you have your pen, pencil, I want you guys to underline or circle this word. There was a dispute. There was a dispute. This word dispute in the Hebrew, in the original language, it means to act as judge. It means to minister judgment. So everyone was throwing around their two cents as if they were the judge. They were all in dispute. People going back and forth. People saying, hey, if I'm in charge, if I was in charge, if I had the power, this is what I think we should do. Everyone acting as judge, they're going around and they're disputing with one another, all between all the tribes, disputing with one another. And I'm sure the, the opinions, they varied amongst the tribes, amongst the people. Some probably called for a new king. All right, David's gone, Absalom's dead. It's time for something new. It's time for a new king. Some probably maybe thought, man, we need a new vision as a nation. Before we appoint someone, we, we, we got some stuff we need to figure out. There's some direction that we need to resolve about vision. Some probably decided, you know what, we need to distance ourselves from the David-Absalom reign. I know God appointed David to the throne and his family. But after, you know, all of David's transgressions as king and everything that took place with Absalom during his reign, I maybe think that we need to distance ourselves from the whole David family and David and his descendants. So everyone wanted to play judge. So everyone disputed with one another. But the only judge that mattered was God. And it was God's desire to bring reconciliation between David and Israel. He wanted to restore the relationship between king and nation. This text shows that there's no relationship. Give me for a moment, church. There's no relationship no matter how fractured it may become, that God cannot heal and restore. You see, for us this morning here in our text, what we have before us 
is this picture of reconciliation. We have this picture of something that seemed so far damaged, so far gone, that at first look, at first glance, at first read, we would look and we would say, can't be fixed. Impossible to bring healing. And yet what plays out before us in the pages of Scripture is a fractured relationship, and God comes, and God heals. God comes, and God restores. We've all seen from a distance... And possibly, maybe even some of us have experienced up close a relationship that looks fractured, a relationship that looks dysfunctional, a relationship that appears to be unhealthy or even toxic, that if we're being honest this morning, we've said in our hearts, there's no way that those two will ever be the same again. How many of us have ever said that before? We've said that about relationships, haven't we? whether they were personal relationships we've been in or relationships we've watched from a distance, we ourselves have been guilty of saying there's no way. There's no possibility. Reconciliation could never take place there. We've, we've said it about marriages. In fact, maybe even some of us here this morning, we've been in that type of marriage. And we've turned around, walked away, because we said there's no possible way for restoration in this situation. Maybe it's a family relationship where the family dynamics have just gotten out of control. Where maybe there has been that David-Absalom betrayal that's happened under the same roof. And some of us have been a part of and looked and seen and said, man, there's no way that family could ever be reconciled. And so most of us, all of us, we've been guilty of saying these words, there's no possible way. Let me say this this morning. Give me your eyes for a moment, church. We need to make sure that we are careful to never limit God when it comes to reconciliation. That we are never to place these limitations on how powerful or if God is strong enough or powerful enough to bring two parties back together. There are many instances in Scripture, in God's Word, where reconciliation seemed impossible. One of my favorite stories is the story of the Apostle Paul and John Mark. How many of you guys know the story, right? We, we've read this story before, right? John Mark was a helper, uh, an assistant on Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey there in Acts chapter 13. However, John Mark didn't last the whole trip. While they were out on this mission trip, for whatever reason, John Mark decides, I don't want to be a part of the mission trip anymore. And so we're told with strong language that John Mark deserted the team. He jumped ship off the mission trip. He left the work that he was in the midst of. You see, the Bible doesn't shy away from using the word deserted. 
And if we're being honest, if you go back there into Acts chapter 13, they were part of what at the time might have felt like a fruitless mission. And there might have been a part of John Mark that become discouraged. There might have been a part of John Mark that said, man, I don't see any fruit happening out there. But whatever reason, I mean, those are all just speculation. Whatever the reason was, he decided to return to the comforts of home. And Paul, Paul was very strong in how he felt about it. You see, later on, Paul and Barnabas were going to go on another missionary journey. They wanted to go back to the, to the cities that they had previously been in, and they wanted to see how everyone was doing. Acts chapter 15. And Barnabas agreed. He said, Paul, that's a great idea. Let's go. Let's return. Let's find out how the people are doing from our first missionary journey. But Barnabas had one thing. He said to Paul, he says, I'll go. Let's do this trip. Let's do this journey under one provision. We take John Mark with us. And you guys remember, Paul refused. Paul said, there's no way we're bringing that guy back on the trip. He deserted us. He quit on us from Paul's vantage point. This is what Paul, this is how Paul viewed John Mark. No way. He's not welcome back. I, I, I would never do another trip with that guy. He deserted us. Obviously, Barnabas was a bit more graceful. He fights for John Mark with Paul and says, no, no, no. We are not going to do this unless John Mark comes with us. Now, this, this going back and forth between Paul and Barnabas, we're told that it was a sharp disagreement. It becomes so sharp, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 39, that the two decided that they were going to go their own separate ways, and they were going to go then onto their own separate journeys. And so John Mark sails off to Cyprus with his cousin Barnabas, and Paul eventually joins up with, you guys remember the name, um, Silas and the two of them, they have their missionary journey. And so Paul also eventually has Timothy come from there. So as they're now gone their separate ways, as they've had this sharp disagreement, most of us, if we've ever read the book of Acts, we would most likely come to the conclusion that this right here between Paul and then on the other side, Barnabas and John Mark, that the two could never come back and reconcile. The disagreement was sharp. It stung. It stabbed. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The sharp disagreement it doesn't sound like it can be fixed. Well, what's interesting about this story, and the reason I share it with you guys this morning, was that years later, after all the missionary travels and after everything that happened and after the sharp disagreement, in Philemon, verse 24, Paul refers to John Mark as his fellow worker. You see, those were words that back in Acts chapter 15, you would have never thought 
that they were possible. That Paul, he's a quitter, he's a deserter. The last thing you have ever thought would come out of Paul's mouth was that John Mark was a fellow worker, a fellow worker in the gospel. And then this one, like, is the cherry on top. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul finds himself in a Roman prison. And he writes to Timothy, and he says, Hey, Timothy, would you go and get Mark for me? Here I am in prison. Would you bring him to me? Because he's helpful, he's useful to me in the ministry. Something happened. Something changed. These men were reconciled. Obviously, the point this morning is, if there's a relationship that some of us have maybe given up on, if there's some sort of partnership where there's been this sharp disagreement and both sides have written each other off or out of one another's life, it's still possible that reconciliation can come down the road. It's still possible that God can do the impossible. What we said cannot happen. Then there's the ultimate reconciliation. In fact, would you guys go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the ultimate reconciliation. We'll be back to 2 Samuel 19, so leave something there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where God's Word talks about God reconciling man to himself through Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go to verse 17. We, we all know the verse. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now look at verse 18. It says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Go back with me to verse 19 real quick. There's something I want you guys to focus on. It says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Listen to the next part. Not imputing their trespasses to them. You see, what we have here is the ultimate reconciliation. Because you and I, at one point, at one time, we were dead in our trespasses. We were stuck in our trespasses. And we didn't want anything to do with God because we loved our trespasses, right? We loved the stuff that we were stuck in. And even when we were at that point, everyone else must have thought, man, there's no way that you, I, we could be reconciled to God. The same way we might look at a marriage or a family and say, no way, I, I can't picture it. What's interesting is that there was a time when people might have said the same thing about us and God and our relationship with him. Oh, no way. I can't picture it. 
there are some of you here this morning who are just naturally kind of good people. So, you know, we look and we say, oh, I, I could kind of pay, you know, I've, or your mom or your dad would have always said, I, I mean, I could have always seen my baby coming to Jesus because they, they, they're not that bad. You know, some of, some of you guys live that life. Yet there are some of us here this morning who <laughs> we're bad. I mean, we're, we're messed up. There's stories. There's pictures. You know, I mean, there, well, whatever it is, we have things, we have trespasses in our life where people looked and said, they, they, they will never, ever be reconciled to God. And I'll be honest with you, there are people that I know even as a pastor, I look and I say, I don't see how it will ever happen. And yet somehow they show up, they give their heart to the Lord, and you look and you're like, man, God is powerful, God is strong. I would have never pictured them following God. You see, that's reconciliation. When we were stuck, when he, he did not impute our trespasses to us, but yet he wanted to be reconciled with us through Jesus, through what Christ did on the cross. And that's how you get a verse 17. Someone became in, becoming new in Christ, a new creation. That's how you get the old things passing away and all behold, all things becoming new. Through reconciliation. Through reconciliation. Now there's one more thing I want to say about reconciliation. Go with me to the end of verse 19 here. 2 Corinthians 5, go to the end of verse 19. It says, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Give me your eyes for a moment, church. Did you know that reconciliation is a ministry. In other translations, it says he's committed to us the word of reconciliation, or in some translations, it says he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What does this mean? It means that the same way that we've been reconciled to God, in the same way that people around us once thought that it was impossible that we could ever be in a relationship with Jesus, He's also committed to us and said, hey, I'm going to give you a ministry. Oh, and it's not going to be an official ministry at church where you get your name on the website and you get a fancy little title or you get a little business card you can pull out of your back pocket like, hey, Razzlachua, part of the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, you, you might not ever get a plaque or acknowledged. You know, Anthony might never design a, a slide for you. You know, we got the reconciliation ministry going on over here on the TV. Anybody want to join? And you, it might, it's not necessarily an official ministry. But let me say this. Give me your eyes for a minute, church. It's a ministry for every single one of us. If you've been reconciled to God, then you are called to the ministry of reconciliation. What is this ministry? It's our everyday life. It's our place in our family. It's our place with our crazy siblings, with that weirdo uncle, and that neighbor that always takes the parking. It's, it's that person. It's this unofficial ministry. 
but official because you're called to it. Where every day as you live, the same way, somehow, whatever it was that you was using your life for you to be reconciled with God, he says, go, verse 20, and speak on Christ's behalf as his, as his ambassador and call people to be reconciled to him too. So crazy uncle, crazy sibling, annoying neighbor, whoever they are, call them to be reconciled to God. I know it sounds impossible. I know it sounds like, and you've even pictured this, it's impossible, never going to happen. Last person I could ever picture coming to know Christ. He says, would you take your ministry, would you take the word that's been committed to you, and would you call people to be reconciled to God? Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 19 and finish up this morning. Let's go back to our text this morning and see the reconciliation between David and Israel and the restoration of David back to his throne. 2 Samuel chapter 19. This is my question this morning. What does it take for a, for a fractured relationship to be restored? What does it take? Whether it's man and God, whether it's your neighbor and God, whether it's a king and a nation, or whether it's two partners on a mission trip, what does it take for a fractured relationship to be restored? Look at verse 9 again. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 9. It says, Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from that land because of Absalom. Verse 10, but Absalom, whom we appointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? You see, sometimes it takes disaster. Sometimes it takes defeat to get people to finally have a healthy perspective. Here in verse 9, the tribes of Israel are trying to figure out why do we hate David so much? Absalom's dead. Our leadership has, or our nation has no direction as far as leadership. Why do we hate David so much? Why wouldn't, now that Absalom is, is done with the rebellion, why wouldn't we just give David back his throne? You see, what's happening here is uh, the people are starting to finally see things from a healthy perspective. Notice in verse 9, they start to remember things about David, the things that Absalom had clouded during the undermining phase. People are starting to re-remember with healthy perspective why David was such a great leader. Notice in verse 9, the people said the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. So David was a constant leader, leading from the front. Why do we hate him so much? And then it says there in verse 9, he delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, even as a young man, with five stones in his hand and a giant in front of him. Remember when he stepped to the front? 
Why do we hate him so much? And then notice in verse 9, it says, He has fled from the land because of Absalom. In other words, David did nothing wrong. It was because of Absalom. It was as if in verse 9, you're watching these people whose view has been tainted for so long now. All of a sudden have the blinders come off and they're looking and they're like, why do we hate David so much? David should be the next king. Sometimes humbling ourselves and not believing the lies of the enemy and remembering the past through proper perspective can lead to reconciliation. Now there's two things that the people could have done with this newfound perspective. Number one, the people could have pridefully continued to reject that perspective And they could have decided pridefully to move forward without David as their king. Even though their perspective is now changing, they could have still been stuck in their pride and said, we're wrong, but we don't want to admit we're wrong, so let's head towards a new season. Let's move forward without David as their king. Yes, these things are true about David, but so much has happened for it to be fixed. It's a terrible mess. Let's move forward and find a new king. Let's make the best of this. Let me say this this morning. If you haven't been listening, at least listen right now. How many marriages could have been saved if people would have just humbled themselves instead of deciding to move forward? If in humility, people would just say, I'm sorry. If people would humble themselves and lay down their pride and say, hey, I'm wrong. I've been seeing this wrong. I need to remember things from a healthy perspective and the enemy's tainted it. I'm not going to move forward. In fact, I'm going to stay right here and fight. You see, the world will constantly tell you, hey, just move on. Just move forward. New is good. No need to fight because it's been a hard 5, 10, 15 years. How many marriages could have been saved if people would just humble themselves? If people would just say, hey, I'm sorry. How many homes could be healed if a parent Or if a child would simply say, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And yet, what do we do? Instead of humbling ourselves, both sides kind of stand their ground, and all of a sudden, that relationship, that home, becomes fractured. Well, we're just going to move on. Or you need to move out. How many relationships would be saved if people just humbled themselves instead of moving forward. Number two, the second thing they could do is in humility receive perspective and make things right with David. Same thing in a marriage. Receive perspective and make things right with your spouse. In a family, receive perspective and make things right in a home, receive perspective and make things right with the boss, whoever it is. 
or whatever relationship is fractured, what, what would it be? What would, how would things look different if we would just humble ourselves? If we would just humble ourselves. Go, go with me to verse 10. It says, but Absalom, who we appoint, uh, anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? Hey, after all that David has done, let's start the conversation, end of verse 10, about bringing back the king. Let's start the conversation. And I want you guys to notice the order. The wrong approaches the wronged. Let me repeat this. The wrong approaches the wronged. That should be the order. If you're wrong, then you should approach the one who was wronged. And I think a lot of times that's why marriages fall apart. Because the wrong won't approach the wrong. It's constantly the wronged having to constantly come back and try and fix things with the one who was wrong in the first place. But if the wrong, the one who's in the wrong, would humble themselves and approach the wronged, the person, then things would look different. Israel, in humility, they're starting to realize they're wrong. And they approach David, who had been wronged. Now let's finish in verse 14 this morning. Before we pray, let's finish in verse 14. So David, in verses 11 through 13, he has a chance to say a few things, things that were on his heart. In verse 11, he addresses the elders of Judah, who were hesitant to reconcile with them. In verse 13, he appoints a new commander of the armies of Israel. Remember, we talked about Joab, the previous one, disobeyed David's command not to murder Absalom. Anyways, Job was a horrible leader. In verse 14, it says, So he, after David talks, he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, Return, you and all your servants, return. Verse 15, then the king returned. Last thing, if you have your pen, pencils, highlighters, there in verse 14, there's two things I want you to underline. In verse 14, I want you to underline, circle, highlight the word return. And then in verse 15, would you underline where it says the king returned. And you guys can close your Bibles. We're done this morning. Let me say this in closing, please do not miss how beautiful this verse is because this is what reconciliation and this is what restoration looks like. This is what the reconciliation or the restoration of a, of a, of a king to his throne looks like and this is what the reconciliation of a king to his people looks like. Twice, I had you guys underline or highlight the word return. The word came from the people, from the nation, to the king. Return. Return to the throne. Return to your place. Return to where you're supposed to be, you and all your servants, you and all your household. Return. Verse 15, then the king returned. The invitation to reconcile was given. Return. And the king accepted. I believe that there are two invitations to reconcile that God is presenting to us this morning. 
The first is maybe God has been stirring in your heart about a relationship in your life that needs reconciliation. And this morning, don't miss the call to reconcile. There's an invitation through the text this morning that's been laid out before you. And some of us maybe need to return to your place in that marriage. Some of us need to return to that place in your family. Some of us need to return to that place and that friendship. The invitation to reconcile has gone out. And I pray that you would accept. I pray that you'd be reconciled. And then before we pray, the second invitation that's been sent out this morning is maybe the relationship most in need of reconciliation is your relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning and the words that you needed to hear was return. Return to Him. Return to a right relationship with Him. Return to walking daily with your God. My prayer is that every single one of us would heed the call, that we'd heed the invitation to return. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this moment, this time that we've had to come and sit and to study your word. And Lord, we thank you for this word this morning, reconciliation. This word this morning, return. Lord, I believe it's a word for every single one of us. No matter who we are, no matter what season of life we're in, the word return will always mean something. God, for some of us this morning, return might be that we are called to return to a specific relationship that's in need of reconciliation. And God, some of us are here this morning and we have that relationship in our life that where it seems impossible, maybe a relationship that we've ridden off, we've given up on, where we think that there's too much pain, too, much, too, too many things have happened for it to ever become resolved. And yet, God, you call us to reconciliation. Lord, you say return. And this morning, Lord, the word for some of us might be that we're to return to you. That we're to return to our first love. That we're to return to the things that we were once passionate about for your kingdom. That we are to take our eyes off this world, off the things going on. That we're to get off the social media, lay off the news, Lord. There's so many things that distract us from just a relationship with you. There's so many things that consume us out, that, 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 that just overtake our heart, that, that flood our minds. And there's limited space for you. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning. Lord, who you brought here because you wanted to say to them, return. I pray right now that they would return. That even there in their seats, that they would say, God, I need to get right with you. Lord, I just, I, I've taken my eyes off you. 
I pray this morning that no matter the situation or the circumstance, each of us would accept that invitation to reconciliation. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's do something different this morning.